Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast. If this is your first time listening, I'll give you some quick background on the podcast. I live in Colorado and work as a Rocky Mountain Ranch broker and as a land conservation consultant. Personally, almost all of my hobbies and interests revolve around life in the American West. I spend as much time as possible outdoors, running long distances, climbing mountains, catching fish, shooting birds, and when I do need to rest, I usually do so while reading books about the history of the American West. So I started the Mountain and Prairie podcast as an excuse to dig even deeper into my obsession with the region. The purpose of the podcast is to spotlight the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. From ranchers to writers, conservationists to entrepreneurs, athletes to artists, there's no shortage of fascinating characters whose careers are making this area such a special place to live, work, and play. I hope you'll enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. But before we get started, I want to thank Mountain Khakis for sponsoring this episode. Mountain Khakis is one of the top outdoor apparel brands on the market today, and for the last 10 years, I've decked myself head to toe in their pants, shirts, shorts, hats, and jeans. When I moved out west in 2005 and started working as a ranch broker in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I learned very, very quickly that I needed clothing that was professional-looking but also durable and rugged. After ripping a good number of pants to shreds on barbed wire fences, I finally discovered Mountain Khaki's original mountain pants. They had the durability of Carhartts, but they were appropriate to wear in any situation with any of my clients. And these clients range from fifth-generation ranchers all the way to high-powered CEOs who fly in on a private jet. So I really do think they're the perfect clothing for life in the West. They're versatile, durable, stylish, and timeless. You can check them out at mountainkhakis.com or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just type in at mountainkhakis. Thanks. So my guest today is Spencer Williams. Spencer started out as a river guide in Colorado's upper Arkansas River Valley. Those experiences guiding ultimately led him to go to law school and become a water rights attorney. He now works for Ponderosa Advisors, a consulting firm that works with clients to understand water rights and water markets, among other things. He's also spending a good bit of his time working with their new online platform, WaterSage, which is a program that's helping to streamline water rights research across several states. I use it almost every day in my work, and I really can't say enough good things about it. It really is a game changer when it comes to understanding water rights and researching water on ranches or other properties throughout the West. I wanted to have Spencer on the podcast because I'm always amazed by how many highly educated, highly engaged, and curious people I meet who have no understanding of water, water rights, or the importance of water in the West. And when I say no understanding, that's not an exaggeration. I mean zero, absolutely no understanding at all. It's always been very, very amazing and kind of alarming, really. So in this episode, we cover a wide range of subjects. We talk about the very basics of water in the West. What is a water right? How can water rights be transferred? How can you separate water from the land? We talk about water as an investment and how investors are putting big money into buying up water rights across the Rocky Mountains. We talk about what sorts of due diligence ranch buyers should do if a ranch that they're looking at has water rights associated with it. And we talk about his current work with both Ponderosa and WaterSage as well as tell some stories from his days as a river guide. We talk about some of his favorite books, his favorite locations in the West, and a ton of other interesting topics. I really enjoyed chatting with Spencer, and I think this conversation will serve as a great primer for anyone interested in learning more about water in the West. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy do it so thanks for doing this no problem that's great yeah um so i guess the first question i would have for you is when you meet somebody at a networking event or you know at any anywhere a party and they ask you what you do for a living what do you tell them you know it depends on how interested they seem (laughs) and uh how much time we have yeah uh if, if it's quick, I'll just say that I, I work in water rights or mm-hmm. I'm a water rights consultant. Um, if they have, you know, if we're actually having a long conversation, I'll tell them, you know, I, I'm a water rights lawyer by trade, uh, but I do water market 
work now, and, and we do part of that through a software platform. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a mouthful. Just but, keep uh, watching until they make sure their eyes aren't glazing. Over. Exactly, yeah. and it can happen quick. But you know, we're a um, we're a consulting firm that's always used software. So we're and and you know, in uh, our own software, and and with what we're doing now, um, we're a little software company too. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it's diverse. <laughs> so I want to get into real detail on Water Sage, yeah. kind of after we talk about water rights in general. Sure. But can you just kind of give an overview of, of the the consulting work you do with water and then yep. Water Sage, and you don't have to go into too much detail because we'll dig into yeah, it. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it quick. Um, so our firm, Ponderosa Advisors, has always been about understanding opaque markets, mm-hmm. uh, and that that's the water rights consulting uh, yeah. aspect that we really focus on. So uh, we'll do a lot in, in kind of in the market space, everything from uh, basic due diligence, uh, market assessments, answering questions about you know liquidity and things like that. Um, all the way up to brokerage in certain situations. Um, so selling that water rights. Yep, water yep. rights themselves. And we focus just on water rights. Um, uh, and then uh, and then we also have this program called Water Sage. Water Sage, I say it's like a combination uh, between Google Maps and Westlaw for water rights. And we'll get into that. But um, it's a great tool and we use it for our work. But we also... Uh, uh, license that to others to do to do um, all sorts of kind of work in the water water business. Yeah, that's that sounds great. And as I'll mention a million times, we use it. Um, I use it in my work in ranch brokerage and love it. Great. And um, so I guess probably before we go any further, I'd like to just kind of do like a water rights one hundred and one yeah, um, discussion because what I found in living out here is that people who aren't directly related either to water law or agriculture or somehow related to land in the West, they really have no understanding of water rights. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of confusion. And it's it's interesting because I would say it's one of the most important issues that, the, that Colorado and the West is going to be facing in the mm-hmm. coming generation. But nobody has any understanding of what water rights means. I mean, they sure. think it means a, a well permit or they think it means taking water out of the stream to bottle it up and sell it to, you know, Dasani or whatever. Right. Um, and so if you could just kind of give us a uh, uh, high-level water rights 101, yeah. you know, basically, you know, what is a water, water right, um, just some sure. history on it, you no, know, absolutely. As, as much detail as you a- can. Absolutely. Uh, uh, it's a unique system, and, you know, the first, kind of the first bedrock principle that helps guide it is... Um, is uh, really our hydrology in the West. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, to boil it down, there's just not much water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had to develop a system to allocate a scarce resource um, because, you know, it, it would not work for all of us to just fight for, for whatever piece we thought we needed. And there's stories of that. You know, you've got some great old uh, stories from Colorado about, about some fights and some near fights that happened over water. Um, I'll tell you, when I first moved to Wyoming in um, 05 from North Carolina, uh-huh. I'd been there a week, and I read an article in the newspaper about these two 80-year-old men who had mm-hmm. both been thrown in prison uh-huh. or in jail because one of them had been sneaking out at night to irrigate his field yeah. and stealing the other guy's yeah. water. and. The guy who was being stolen from went after the other old man with a shovel. Right. And they hot they, they first they went to the hospital, then they went to jail. And so right. that was my first introduction to water in the West. Yeah. Like, there's there's something here. There's this old story, you know, uh, the Union colony outside Greeley, this isn't like the eighteen fifties or sixties, was this utopian concept, but it was one of the first communities that uh, was going to irrigate the plains mm-hmm. and establish a farming community. And uh, as the story goes, some of the guys peeled off and went up to Fort Collins and started a town there and um, and they built a big old irrigation ditch and started diverting all of the water well the guys down at the Union Colony down river uh, they didn't have any water then but they were then claiming and this is where the premise the, the, the foundational principle of water rights comes into play but uh, they were claiming, well, we were here first, therefore we're entitled to the water, even though you're upstream of me. Yep. And they all met at a schoolhouse down in Greeley somewhere. And uh, it, so the story goes: the crowds are outside the schoolhouse with shotguns and pitchforks and torches, while the you know these few men are in the schoolhouse trying to negotiate this deal. Yep. But um, but what came of that was uh, the enforcement of this first in time, first in right principle. And I'll, I'll get to that, and I'll, I'll circle back 
Um, to the beginning, you know, the basic concept is that water use in the West, and particularly in Colorado, is a property right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is something that I can buy and sell. In Colorado, it can be severed from the land. Um, the, one of the key distinctions is it's it's a right to use that water. Mm-hmm. That means that, um, uh, you know, if I'm irrigating a certain 40 acres for a certain purpose, the right that I have that's transferable is the right to divert that water and use it on that land. Uh, uh, I don't have the right to just uh, divert that water and, and, you know, throw it in trucks and wait until the market arises for it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, the concept of beneficial use. The right to use water is that property right. Yep. It's not the right to just, um, to just you know, store water up um, mm-hmm. until you, you're ready to sell it. Um, uh, yeah, and it is transferable. I mean, it... Uh, it um, it's conveyed by deed, like real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something else called a mutual ditch company, which mm-hmm. is just a corporate ownership of the same type of right. And uh, you transfer that interest uh, like you would a stock certificate in any other company. But um, I, I think what bothers people, though, when you're coming from somewhere else, is you, you buy land or you're on land somewhere. And, and it's just kind of a there's something natural to say, well, water's flowing through my land, therefore I must have some right to use it, Mm -hmm. as is the case in most of the eastern U.S., and that's just not the case in Colorado. You could have plenty of water flowing right right through your property with zero right at all to use any amount of that water, and that's because of the water rights system. And so you mentioned uh, the water can be severed from the land. Can you explain that? That, Sure. That's something that always people always seem to get hung up on. Sure. Um, so, you know, if you go back, uh, just to set it up, um, all, the large uh, majority of the water use in Colorado is in agriculture, and it's been in that way for a long time. You know, we, we settled Colorado as an agricultural state. Um, there are some older rights in mining. That's because people came here first to mine. But, uh, um, but for the agricultural example, uh, you know, those rights have been used on certain parcels of land, um, you know, for generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can happen, though, is, is that water right uh, that provides the water to that land uh, can be sold independently. Now, uh, every all new water rights and any change to a water, it has to go through the water court. Mm-hmm. In Colorado, it's a unique system to Colorado. We have seven water courts. And, um, and to, to, uh, to change that water to a use besides irrigation, you have to go to water court and prove to the court that you're not going to hurt anyone else's water rights by making that change. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're at, you, but you're in no way precluded from buying the water right, mm-hmm. conveyed to you by deed, going to water court, um, uh, getting the change, and then using it almost anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's happened here in the Front Range. Uh, a large number of the cities have bought up agricultural water rights and changed them. And now instead of, you know, being diverted in the so-and-so ditch onto that land, uh, they're diverted into the city pipeline, city wastewater treatment, uh, or, or water treatment um, to provide drinking water. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in every one of these cases is unbelievably complicated and nuanced. But in general, so in the early 1900s, late 1800s, if you were to sell one water right to another person, generally it was probably somebody had some dry land, somebody else upstream had some irrigated meadows. You buy their water rights. They have to quit irrigating their meadow. You get to irrigate yours. Yeah, that that's uh, certainly a way that it could have happened. Um, and a lot of those just traded with the property too. You know, yeah. you realize that in Colorado they they can trade with the property, but there's just nothing legally speaking that's permanently tying them to the property. You know, yeah. you you can sever those um, um, from the real estate. But yeah, you're right. I mean. You know, uh, the early trades were probably farmer to farmer. You know, you've got more water uh, than you need. I don't have any, um, so I'll buy your rights yep. uh, from you. Um, and that especially became true once we diverted all the water in Colorado. Once we, uh, all the water in Colorado got tied up in water rights, which that's the way it is now for, you know, the large majority of the state. Um, yep. Every drop of water that comes out of the state is, is allocated in some way to a water right. Yep. So... And, and so now you were talking about municipalities using the water. So now what's happening a lot is we've got this population boom along the front range. Mm-hmm. Municipalities are going to ranchers and they're saying, can we buy your water rights? Yep. And then 
so the ranchers end up drying up their meadows, and then that water flows down the stream and then comes to Denver, where yep. we can use it for drinking water. Yep, exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah, and that's you know that's been happening um, on, on a small scale for a really long time. Yeah. But, but on a larger scale, kind of since the '70s, from what I understand. Um, yeah, and it's you know it's uh, it's kind of the the market acting. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, it's a it's a property right can yep. be bought and sold, and uh, and there's a municipal demand, and the supply is locked up in agriculture, and mm-hmm. there's been those times um, in the last fifty years where that market will uh, function to transfer that water from, you know, uh, one use to, you know, economically speaking, at least another highest and best use for that water. Yep. Now that's, you know, that, that's, that's purely speaking from an economic standpoint, you know, there's a lot more that, that, that uh, informs that conversation now. Yep. Um, in terms of what our state values and the landscapes that we value. So one question that I get a lot um, from, people looking to buy a ranch or, or confusion that I always see is that people there's a confusion between having a well on your property mm-hmm. like a domestic well for your house mm-hmm. and having water rights yep so for example if a property if I have a ranch and it doesn't have it there are no water rights associated with it which means no <coughs> irrigated meadows right somebody will say well that means I can't have a well for my house and so d- can you explain the difference I, there absolutely um there's something called an exempt well, and uh, and the, you know all you have to do to obtain one of these exempt wells is get the permit from the state engineer's office. The state engineer is the is the entity that enti- that uh, administers all of the water rights in the state, but also some of these other water related things like like these domestic well permits. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're exempt. They're exempt from the water rights system. Um, and uh, and so I think, and I'd have to always, I always have to look it back up, but um, it's uh, a domestic only use, less than fifteen gallons per minute, um, or I think if you're on like thirty acre lots or more, mm-hmm. uh, it can be a, a well. I don't, I still think it's about fifteen gpm, but you can irrigate so much lawn and have a domestic use, water one or two horses or something like that. And that, that's a policy thing, you know. I don't think the water rights system was ever intended to deprive individuals of drinking water. Sure. And the amount of water being used for those uses is relatively small, all things considered. And so, um, you know, uh, yeah, your, your well permit, that's a, that's a regulatory approved structure that the state values and says we, we don't want the water rights system to, to, um, to interfere with. And it's not really a water right because you don't own it. It's not something that's transferred by deed. It's more you have a permit with the state of Colorado to use that water. Yep. And you can transfer the permits mm-hmm. from owner to owner, but it's not a true water right. Right. Correct? It, yeah, it, um, it, it's not. And, you know, the other thing, uh, the other, and we haven't talked about this priority idea yet, first in time, first in yep. right, but it's a good time to bring it up. Um, because the, the critical component of a water right is its priority, and, and that's what I was talking about with the Union Colony and the Fort mm-hmm. Collins uh, settlement. Um, uh, you know, the Union Colony was downstream, but they diverted that water earlier. And, and their claim was, well, listen, we were there first, so we deserve to get our water before Fort Collins upstream can divert their water. Mm-hmm. And that is the law now. I mean, that's how it works on every stream system um, for for every water right in the state. Um, and, and that's what defines value because if you're an old water right, when the water level starts going down, be it a drought year or late summer every year, um, as the water level starts going down, um, the senior water rights are those that are guaranteed to continue to receive water. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a key element of a water right. Um, now, a well permit doesn't have a priority date, mm-hmm. right? It, it operates outside of that system. Yep. Um, and you're right. It's, you know, you think of a well permit um, as a fixture or a permanent appurtenance. I mean, you know, um, that, that water is for a very specified use. It's regulatorily approved yep. on a property. Um, and, yeah, very different from a water right with a priority date. Um, uh uh, that acts in that water right system. And so just to explain that first in time, first in right, um, 
and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, so when there's a massive snowpack, we got a ton of snow and there's no issue with drought, pretty much along along a drainage, basically everybody who has water rights can use it in general. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes. Yeah, usually. And then, but that comes into play on a drought year when there's Mm -hmm. not enough water for everybody. So basically what happens is they, if you have an, um, a newer water right, mm-hmm. you get cut off. Exactly. We would call it curtailed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you get you get curtailed as the water level, you know, uh, as the water level goes down. You, you know, the, the example is 10 CFS, cubic feet per second. That's how we measure water going through the stream. A, a cubic foot is about a basketball. So you imagine 10 CFS flowing down the stream and three water rights. You know, the oldest is for um, five CFS and the two uh, newer water rights are both for, um, you know, three and two CFS. Mm-hmm. Well, 10 CFS in the stream, no problem. Everybody diverts their piece and everybody gets it. Yep. Um, you know, let's say those newer water rights are upstream and that flow drops down to six CFS. Well, it's not like everybody takes their proportionate amount. That most junior can't divert anything. He's out of priority. Uh, the next most junior only gets that one CFS, even though he might be uh, decreed or approved for two or three. And that senior gets everything that uh, that's in the stream to meet his need, all five CFS. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how that plays out. Um, uh, yeah, and that, that's been the law in Colorado since uh, statehood. Well, I think that kind of segues into something that I think would be useful to talk about for people who are looking to buy ranches. Sure. And I'm not talking about a, you know, 30,000 acre massive working ranch, but somebody say they want to buy 500 acres. Yeah. And it has, they want 500 acres with some water right component. Sure. Obviously, if you get deep into the due due diligence, you want to either hire you guys to look at it or Mm -hmm. go through their, their own attorney to look at it. But are there any kind of general rules of thumb that you as a water rights attorney would recommend buyers just kind of a checklist they go through to get a good idea of, of exactly what they're looking at absolutely and, and anything to avoid absolutely um you know um i mean there's a few things uh you, you want to work on understanding the priority of your water right um uh, but, you know, why that really matters is it affects your ability to divert wet water for your use. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're talking about a, a, a ranch like you described, um, you know, that water could be valuable for a number of reasons. Perhaps you're actually running cattle, you know, and you're growing hay um, or you're irrigating pasture. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it might be for that use. Uh, if you're not, uh, it's an aesthetic amenity. I mean, a, a green meadow is, is valuable because it's it's aesthetically pleasing. Um, you know, on the other end, you know, uh, anyone that's got trout ponds and things like that, usually they're relying on a, on a changed old irrigation water right to do that. Um, but, um, but what you want to make sure of is that that water right has the ability to deliver water um, to continue that use. And the first thing that I would check is diversion records. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a lot of the water rights in the state, you can call the Division of Water Resources, something that we can uh, find for you, or you can use the program that we have. Um, uh, but, you know, these folks have been reporting how much water they've diverted in each month of the irrigation season. Um, and those records are great because, you know, w- with a little bit of guidance, you can say, well, what were the low water years, the drought years, what were the high water years? And let's look, you know, okay, well, uh, you can see in April of every year we diverted, you know, uh, 100 acre feet or whatever it might be. Um, you know, we can see that maybe in uh, August diversions stop every year. Well, what that probably means is a, is a more junior water, right? Because as water levels go down towards the end of the summer, natural water levels, those senior rights are taking water. Now, you might look at it and see diversions clear, you know, uh, April through October. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's probably indicative um, of a more senior water right, yep. especially if you see those diversions flatten out towards the end of the season. Mm-hmm. That means that um, that right is probably relatively senior and has the ability to capture um, remaining water in the system through the late season. So once you've done that, you kind of say, well, here's the wet water delivered. Um, from there, you can actually go in and, and look at its priority. We can help with that. 
Um, the local water commissioners are great resources for that. Um, you can find their information on the state's website, and there's one for um, almost every you know sub basin in the state, and they're the local experts, um, and they'll tell you a whole lot about uh, the priority of that water right. So, and another thing that Water Sage I think really helps with. Water Sage allows you to have all those records on one screen in front of you. You yep, just exactly. click on the on the water right yep. on the map, and it shows you all the diversion records, which are great. But you know, one important thing that we hadn't talked about is non-use. And right. if if you could explain non-use and what what well, there. I you know like we said in the beginning, it, it's a it's a right to use water, and if you're not using it, you risk what's called abandonment. Uh, and any water right not you know, that can be proven uh, that it wasn't used for 10 years is kind of statutorily abandoned. Now, you have to go through a process to either prove that you didn't intend to abandon it or, um, or you know, the state has to show that you did in most situations. Um, but that's an expensive process. And so that's why, again, it's those diversion records really matter. If you, if you can't find diversion records... Um, if if you've got diversion, you know, I'd be even more, if you can't find them, that could be just someone not reporting. Mm-hmm. But if you've got diversion records straight through the 80s, let's say, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden nothing, mm-hmm. uh, that that's a reason for concern, you know. Would it be a reason for concern people not reporting? Because if you're not reporting, there's no record. More and more it is. Yeah. More and more the state engineer is taking a position that to protect your water rights, you have to have measuring devices installed to actually show how much water you're using. You've got to be reporting those numbers. Yeah. Um, that's more and more important as time goes on. Now, I I don't see particularly in some of these uh, uh, agricultural settings that you know that being uh, a total red flag yet. But I would recommend anybody buying water rights um, to keep the best records they can yep. uh, to comply with those requirements. Um, yeah. So then you know there's actual abandonment lists and and you can check those yourself. We can check them for you. Um, that kind of information is available in WaterSage too. Um, but every 10 years, they publish a list of those rights that they believe are abandoned, and that triggers that process. So that's another great thing to check and make sure you've not yep. been on the abandonment list at any time. And generally, whenever I've seen that come up as an issue, it's with ranches that have been in the same family for generations. Yep. And because usually if a ranch has changed hands, you know, within the last 10 years, somebody has checked that out. Yep. And they've made sure that everything is, is in line as it should be. But some of these ranches that have been in the same family for 40 years, mm-hmm. you know, somebody's been sloppy with the record keeping yep. or, or hasn't done it as they were supposed to. And they're, they think they have this water right and maybe they use it some, maybe they don't, but, you know, they're, they're charging a certain price for that water right, but you need to make sure you're actually going to get it. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, wa- water administration has changed a lot in the last 50, 60 years. And um, a system that was a lot of word of mouth, a lot of handshake deals, a lot of, you know, um, kind of uh, agreements, over, you know, over the table uh uh, has changed and it's not that anymore. Mm-hmm. It's 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 much it's administered much more closely. So some, someone that was used to the, the way it was done in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, you know, it's 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 become very different. You know, kind of the 70s forward. Well, I think and it's so, it's becoming a, a lot more valuable. And like any sure. asset, you know, in the old days, hey, you know, it's like land. You know, there's plenty of land, no big deal, and there's plenty right. of water for everybody. But now yeah. it's become clear that. There simply isn't enough yeah, water, and it's so true. we got it. They're tightening it up. Yep. Um, yep. And and you know I think we we were talking about this just before we started recording, but you're seeing a lot of these groups come in that are interested in buying water rights yep. as an investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big money, some institutional money coming in, looking at water as the yep. next big big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, you think basic supply and demand tells you it is going to be, but. You know, there's a rule, at least in Colorado, that prevents people from speculating in water. So can right. you speak to how people are using water as an investment vehicle yeah. without crossing into speculation? Sure. Um, you know, the um, the spe- there's a doctrine called the anti-speculation doctrine. And, and the examples that I think of are, are cases where someone has um, gone and, gone to water court to change some water rights. And typically they own a large agricultural portfolio mm-hmm. of some kind and they go to water court to change it for municipal use. Well, if you don't come to water court with signed commitments 
for the purchase of that water from a city, then you're not gonna, you're like very likely not going to get through water court. Um, because they would call that speculative. They would say you're changing it to a speculative use, mm-hmm. uh, and that's always been um, that's all that's always been a, you know a, a contrary to law in, in Colorado. And the point is, is that we want to utilize the waters of the state. We really want to put that water to use to support. You know, these days it's our agricultural economy, our recreation economy. You know, the environment that makes those things both valuable. I mean, on and on and on. Um, um, so it plays out in the water court uh, perspective. Now, um, it doesn't prohibit purchasing water rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's been going on in the investment space and uh, is people recognizing that the water rights are in short supply, that a market exists, um, and uh, and so they've been investing in water-rich properties. Um, you know, it's it's my opinion that the payout of those. Uh, is um, uh, is uncertain, mm-hmm. and I, I think there's a lot of great indicators out there to say that water will become valuable. Uh, but what you have to really be focused on is uh, what's the market, mm-hmm. and and if there isn't an existing market, what's the possible market that's going to materialize for that? And then when it does, how will you deliver your water to that market? And the moment you start talking about pipelines or exchanges or anything like that then you need to be pretty serious about how you're going to pencil that deal. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's just a lot of money to get those things done. Now, uh, it's different in a place where all you have to do is stop diverting and let it flow down river. But but I think that the perspective has been um, from kind of the investment community is we're going to buy uh, water rights either in the development path, uh, we're going to buy water rights in basins that are feeling pressures, uh, and we're kind of in a waiting game to see uh, that market come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to um, to monetize that water value, so, so that's one perspective. The other the other piece of it, and and people are doing this as well, is just realizing that the benefits that that water provides on a piece of land will appreciate themselves. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you see this on ranches, but um, you know uh, the value of that green meadow. They're they're basically just saying, listen, that itself is going to get more and more valuable over time because there's going to be less and less of it. Yep. Some guys investing in farmland saying, you know, productive farmland that's underpinned by valuable water rights, that itself is going to get more and more scarce and therefore much more valuable. Yep. That's kind of a couple ways that, that um, I think people are looking at that right now. Yeah, I agree with all that. And, you know, I think one thing that prevents the average investor, you know, say somebody's got 10 million bucks and they want to put it into a, a land and water deal. Mm-hmm. What prevents them from being able to just buy it, hold on to it and then, you know, sell it at a big, you know, flip it years later is that it's just so unbelievably complicated. Yeah. And so we're seeing, you know, the people that we're seeing that are really serious about it have a background in water law. Yeah. Because it this is the last number I heard, but to convert um, you know, one acre foot of water in agricultural use to a municipal use is a hundred thousand dollars in legal fees per acre foot. You know, is that about? I mean, in that area, total change case for a big one, I think, probably starts at a couple hundred thousand dollars and could could get more expensive from there. So I you got to have scale, and yep. you got to know what you're doing, and, and so the, <laughs> the the people who can do it and and not incur that huge expense are the ones that have a background in, in yeah. water long and do it themselves. Sure. And I, you know, I think that's one, I always tell people, you know, if you want in, if you want in kind of the investment game in water rights, how it's kind of uh, materializing right now, you need to have uh, a fair amount, quite, quite a bit actually of your own money and be really good at farming. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's because you're going to be making money farming. Uh-huh. Um, you need to be able to make uh, enough money farming until the market materializes. Yep. And sometimes that'll be fast. I mean, you know, if you're buying right in the development path, that could be quicker. But any of these bigger deals, I think you're, it's a longer-term play, which I think likely will will pay off for a lot of people at some point. Um, but the question is when. And, yep. you, you know, you need to be ready to to uh, farm that ground. Yeah, oh, <laughs> until, yeah. Until you get there. Um, well, one reason I wanted to do this podcast in general is because I've, all the people I meet out west and who are either involved in conservation or water or right. sports or whatever, everything we do out here, there's so many people that are really, really interesting and uh-huh. pretty funny. So you yeah. need to tell some jokes. No, <laughs> But, um, yeah, I think your background is really interesting because you're not from here originally. 
Yep. You're a lawyer, but you're also a river guide. Yep. You worked for the government for a while. So can you kind of give me your background or give everybody else? Sure. I know most of it, but um, sure. how you ended up doing what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, more or less, I'm, I'm really from Texas and uh, uh, went to Texas A&M and uh, never liked Texas that much when I lived there and I left and, and uh, I love it more every day. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I'm glad to live in Colorado, no doubt. No, I, I was in um, college and looking for something different to do and I had a fraternity brother who was a whitewater rafting guide and I didn't know him that well, but he said, it's a great job, you should give it a shot. So mm-hmm. he uh, had a connection with the company he worked for and so I had... Uh, Applied for a job and got it, and sight unseen, you know, drove drove up through Texas to Buena Vista, Colorado, and yep. uh, had a job as a rafting guide, and it was it was great fun. Was that during college? That was when I was in college. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, it's a you know, it's one of those great jobs. You never have all downhill from there. Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of a thing. <laughs> um, but you know, it's the Arkansas River. It's a great place to be a guide because the volume of trips is huge. Um, yeah. Um, but it's also a beautiful Browns Canyon's a beautiful place, and the whole Upper Arkansas Valley is a beautiful, beautiful place. And so I just had the privilege to um, spend about four uh, years, um, you know, on the river every day, guiding trips mm-hmm. and everything from families to bachelor parties to you know buddies, you know, and everything in between. Um, just spending every day on the river, and, and a part of that we did back uh, backpacking trips too. So God, I, I love the Arkansas River. I, I may have told yeah. you that when I was in high school. They sent us out here for a leadership you retreat, did. Uh-huh. and it was to the Arkansas River Valley. Yep. Right there, we did the rafting, we did we climbed a fourteener, and that was my first taste of yeah. the of the West. I'd never been out west before. Well, and yeah, I mean, that was it. I mean, that that's what planted the seed. That's why I'm here now. The Upper Oak Valley is it's a it's it's my favorite place uh, probably, and uh, and and it's because it's a mixture of a lot of things. You know, it's it's been saved from a lot of the commercialization because there's not a major ski resort. Mm-hmm. In the valley, yep. you've got Monarch 50, 60 miles to the south. If you go over um, Tennessee Pass, you can get the Copper, or you can get yep. over to Vale, um, but it's going to take you about an hour. And in the yep. wintertime, uh, those are you know can be hairy drives, and so people sure. don't do it. But um, but that valley there, it's just kind of been protected in a cool way. The the river community is a great community. There are um, you know they call it the Banana Belt to the Upper Rock Valley, and, and that's because. Um, just the way the weather patterns work, the valley itself stays relatively uh, temperate um, mm-hmm. for Colorado, at least through the winter. Um, uh, but but to me, that just kind of feels like Colorado. It's almost like um, a feeling of the plains. You've still got some uh, really big cattle, cattle and hay ranches uh, up in the valley. Um, um, and then you've got the recreation. But then, you know, you're right at the base of the collegiate peaks, so, you know. Uh, I always say Mount Princeton, right? You're coming over Trout Creek Pass, you know, down down uh, into town. And a mountain, uh, no mountain looks as much like a mountain should as Mount Princeton. I think the exact same going thing. Going valley floor straight to the top, you know. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, it's just a magical place. It um, is. Uh, place that I love. So, anyways, though, you know, I, I was a kid from Texas and, you know, driving. I remember, um, you know, coming off at Walsenburg and driving up by the wet mountains up through um, – uh, that valley right there, yep. and coming up through Salida and BB, and thinking, "Wow, this this is more than I expected." Yeah, and yeah, I played on the river for four about four years. Met my, met my wife there, you know, all sorts of great stuff. So, um, so yeah, that was my first Colorado experience, and you know, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dream used to be a river guy to be a river guy. I mean, yeah, that that just seems really cool, and that yeah. river will rip through there. It does. Well, the Arkansas is great because at runoff, Browns Canyon is a can become a pretty intense trip uh but then late season you know um late season it's a it's a pretty mellow trip and so just the difference in that um is uh, awesome and you know it's a really great way uh you know i kind of got to learn about hydrology that way yep. um and unintended but just to understand how the rivers work in colorado uh you know and and i kind of got the hard knocks education sure <laughs> as a raft guide but um it was an education nonetheless, and it was actually really helpful for me working in water to have that experience. That's what I was going to ask. So yeah. do you link your time as a river guide to water law and now what you're doing with Water Sage? And water I, I, I absolutely do. You know, for me, it's just loving um, – the, the beginning was just loving the landscape and loving how the river kind of defines that landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first part. But then it's a little thing, you know – 
on the Arkansas, um, as a raft guide, uh, you don't know much about water use outside of um, the industry you're in, but you do know that April, or, excuse me, August 15th every year, flow goes from about 700 CFS down to about 400 CFS, and, and it's like in a day or two. Yeah, and uh, that's um, that's because of flow management based on water rights use uh, on the Arkansas, and that intrigued me. I kind of realized that was a thing. Yep. Um, and that's that's kind of what led me to um, so explain exactly what was happening there. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a um, it's a program called the Voluntary Flow Management Program, and on the Arkansas up up high in the mountains there are a, a, a number of reservoirs, Twin Lakes and Turquoise Reservoir, and um, uh, Turquoise particularly is a component of the Frying Pan Arkansas Project that brings water from above Aspen over the Continental Divide, and it's supplemental water that that uh, helps provide water to a bunch of farms down, you know, on the plains, um, as well as cities and industry down there. And uh, they pull all that water over the divide, and they keep it up in that high mountain reservoir. And they do that because you lose less water the higher up uh, you are, um, less evaporation. Yep. Uh, but they have to deliver all that water down to its use. Now it gets stored in Pueblo Reservoir down in Pueblo and that's kind of the holding tank to get it used but they have to and there's some other conveyances like that that happen on that stretch but basically the issue is at some point every year they're going to take the water up in Turquoise and Twin Lakes and get it down to Pueblo and what they said is and this this came out of some litigation and things like that but some people agreed you know listen if we can move that water from point a up high to point b down low and provide some benefits to some other industries then, then let's do it so um so they manage those flows both to keep the rafting industry afloat uh, through mid-august where natural flows wouldn't have that much water in there at that yep. time uh, and to improve the fishery um, and so they do some flow management during spawning times and things like that um, you know, and since then, I mean, the rafting industry has this benefit that even in bad years, they can depend on raftable flows through most of the season. Uh, and that keeps a lot of those businesses alive. Um, and, you know, also from my understanding, the fishery has improved immensely in the last 15 or 20 years. You know, whirling disease was terrible on the, um, on the upper arc, um, and it wiped out, you know, nearly all the rainbow trout uh, fishery there. Um, but it has since begun to recover. Um, the brown trout fishery has just continued to improve and improve. Um, but I think it's in part because of this flow management um, that they've done in that part of the world. That's so, interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. But it, at least from my perspective, it seems to have been really valuable and it meets a lot of different needs. Yeah. So. Um, one more question about river guiding. What, yeah. was the, what was the craziest thing you ever saw happen <laughs> when you were guiding? Man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, there's a lot of wild stuff that happens, some good, some bad. Uh, I had a bad habit. There was one spot on the river where more than once I would, um, I would be the only one to fall out of my boat, <laughs> right? And uh, were the clients on, still in the boat? What's the, were the clients? And still all in my the clients boat? would still be in the boat. <laughs> and on more than one occasion, I I was able to, I would fall out, get back in the boat, yeah. and and uh, get back to my seat. And all they would notice is that I was just soaking wet. <laughs> and, uh, and that happened more than once in a couple spots. Um, you know, boats flip, and it's a dynamic environment. I, you know, I'm grateful to not have any wild stories because the really wild stories seem to turn bad pretty quickly. Yeah, that's the thing. In the mountains or rivers, or you know, uh, there's a fine line between a crazy, funny story that you remember and tragedy. I know. So it's well, probably probably it, better to. It's keep so it. true. And you know, you think about rafting as a guide. It's oh, it's all fun and all games and. You hear this from, like, you know, like you're saying, you hear this from uh, kind of alpinists and, and all people that have to manage risk. And you're really just a professor, professional uh, risk risk manager Oh yeah, um, all the time. And so, uh, so sometimes, you know, that, that kind of becomes the experience. You know, but um, on private trips, the game changes a little bit. And, you know, I've, I've done the canyon by moonlight more than have once. Have you really? And, yeah, and some great fishing trips down there. and. Some things like that, which are really, really cool. Have you ever read The Emerald Mile? You know, I, I, I got into it, but I didn't get through it. I just finished it. Yeah. And my dad and I did a trip, a rafting trip down the Grand Canyon uh-huh. um, when I was in high school. And, God, that book was so good. And yeah. it gives you, I think it gives you good insight into or gave yeah. me good insight into the whole river guide community. Yeah. The tough guys, man. They are tough guys. I'm pretty familiar with, you know, the <laughs> mountain climbers, the runners. But, I mean, that's just a whole other level of being a tough guy. Well... I and guess. gals, yeah, for sure, for sure. I, uh, um, 
Yeah, the guys that have done it for a long time, they're, they are their own breed for sure. <laughs> for um, sure. So I could talk about that stuff all day, but uh-huh. I want to talk about Water Sage, kind of the specifics yeah. of the program, because yeah. I think it's a, I really think it's an unbelievable tool, as you know, because uh-huh. at like networking events, I stand by your side and <laughs> tell everybody how awesome I, it is. I'm indebted. Yeah, <laughs> I need a cut. Um, but. Yeah, so just if you can kind of talk more about the program, and sure. then I'd love to hear. Yeah, yeah, just kind of tell me about the program and then how it came into existence. Yeah, what, you know more about what it does, who yep. uses it, all that yep. kind of stuff. No, absolutely. Um, Water Sage, like I said earlier, it's kind of like Google Maps in that it's a map-based platform. It's all web-based. You go watersage.com, you log in from there, and um, and this map comes up, and and through its functions, you can search and identify the locations of all the water rights in Colorado. In addition to that, we've got a large majority of the land parcels in Colorado, um, all of those permitted wells we were talking about, but also stream gauges, and we're continually adding data to the system. But, um, you know, finding water rights data and understanding water rights has always been really hard. Uh, and, the, you know, the state of Colorado does it, and there's a, a, a small group of key employees over at the Division of Water Resources that do an amazing job about, uh, you know, getting all this data together. Um, and, uh, and categorizing this data and making it available in different ways. Um, and, and that's been really good for the professional community um, to have access uh, to, to that. But if you weren't a water rights professional previously, it was so hard to make any sense of that. And so our first goal was to condense all of that data into a non-technical system and make it usable to someone that, that probably interacts with water rights. You're a great example of yeah. that, right? I mean, water rights you know, are important probably for every deal that comes across your desk. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're not working in a, in a water rights yep. specific, you know, capacity. And so we wanted to create something for guys like you to be able to get in there, get some really good information about what they're looking at so they could start to make good decisions about water rights uh, issues. Um, and, and that's what it is. It's non-technical. It's all the data. It's easy to use, but it's also thorough. And we've seen, you know, uh, the ranch brokerage community was one of the first big communities to, to buy in. Yep. Um, since then, we have federal, state, and local government clients, water providers, water rights lawyers and engineers, uh, conservation groups. I mean, it's really expanded to um, to anyone that uh, is either working with that data consistently or needs access and, and comprehension of that data, um, but otherwise doesn't either have the time or, or, or kind of the repetitive need that would push them to learn kind of the more complex ways to use it. Yep. Well, it seems like a lot of, you know, one of the biggest benefits for, in my line of work is that you take this unbelievably complicated and hard to use system and mm-hmm. boil it down into basically a, a point and click, easy to use, yep. you know, as, as things should be now on the internet. And, um, you know, you, in the past, any real issues with water rights, you had to hire a water rights attorney. And so you think you're paying a water rights attorney on an hourly basis to basically just do kind of grunt work going through the clerical type work, going through the internet, going through the, the government systems and putting together this, this information. And so now all of a sudden I can do that in five minutes. Yeah. Whereas it used to be hours and thousands of dollars. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and we see that. I mean, you know, there are tasks, you know, uh, that are always going to be really important to have a, uh, an attorney or an engineer do yes. um, without question. But but also, you know, uh, most people out here are smart people. Um, and if they have the right resources, they can they can get a lot done themselves. And we, we believe WaterSage allows that. But then we also, you know, we like and we hear these stories of when, when you become educated and engaged in the water rights kind of issues that are going on, when you go to your attorney, you're coming with concise questions. Yep. You're coming with um, with problems you've recognized, um, and you're giving you're allowing them the opportunity to do the real legal work, or go to the water rights engineer and do the real engineering work, and to work kind of more much more collaboratively than was previously possible. Yep. And we see that as a really good thing for the industry as a whole. Um, but but it's something that we we really do like to promote, and we we see happen. Because folks are able to use water stage. Yeah, I think you know in our business when I first started using it, I thought, 
oh, this, you know, this is a huge competitive advantage. We'll know more about the water than our, our competitors. And, right. But then I was working on a deal with a, another uh, broker at a different ranch brokerage firm that also uses water sage. Mm-hmm. And I found that it allowed us just to cut through a lot of the kind of nonsense that or, or lack of information. And he had the same information that I had, and mm-hmm. we were both on the same page. And it just made the whole thing go a lot more smoothly than it used to. Well, uh, or it, or then it would have gone gone if I had had all that info. Sure, and he hadn't had anything. Yeah, and so I think it just it cuts out a lot of inefficiencies. And in, from my in my business, it cuts out inefficiencies in the deal. And so I, I'd imagine it's the exact same for conservation organizations who are working with limited budgets, yep. limited time. For sure. And, you know, for a conservation organization, they, they are such a key stakeholder in that piece of land. Mm-hmm. You know, even, uh, you know, the primary stakeholder is, uh, is that landowner, um, without question. Um, but even for that landowner, you know, Sometime that individual will cease to be the person stewarding that land. Now, the conservation organization, on the other hand, has has taken on the responsibility to steward that land in perpetuity. Yeah, for uh, and so they are such an important stakeholder in that process. And so, exactly for them, you know, they're saying we realize the water is a key and important component. So we just, we want to be educated. Yep. We want to understand it for ourselves. We want to engage with our professionals well. Because um, we know how important it is. So another thing I've found with Water Sage is that you know you, it's it's relatively expensive compared to a lot of online platforms. But mm-hmm. if you're in the in this this business of these high value ranches, it pays for itself very quickly because you know you can get a really good idea of what's going on with the water within 10, 15, 20 minutes, whereas mm-hmm. it used to be hours and hours and hours of research. And I think just being able to save that amount of time is worth so much for right for our you know for selfishly for my time but then also for the client you know sure. the client is better off for sure that. And absolutely you just provide better service you're providing you know you're providing value in your service without question but you know uh, from a broker's perspective and we see this in, in the water ice brokerage you know uh your effective rate gets whittled down the, the more hours you're putting in to getting a deal close you know and the ability to get just as good of data but cut that time down absolutely is a benefit you know we see our other users conceptualize the value in a lot of other ways uh you know um, for our government clients they're all overworked and um and anything they can do to get more efficient uh become more productive uh, and provide better product i mean you know uh is without question of value when you get over to the professionals you know um there's a benefit to, to being comprehensive the the uh, quality of your work gets better when you're not maintaining, spending time maintaining large databases and disincentivized because you're having to query multiple databases and keep data up to date. You know, we take on that burden so that you're just focusing on getting information, understanding. Uh, and yeah, our, our users seem uh, to, to very easily conceptualize the value that it provides. So, another benefit that I've found uh, with it is that it. It, it's basically a GIS system of the entire state. Yep. And so where I used to, if I was researching landowners or trying to understand land ownership in a valley, if there are three or four counties that go along a valley, you have to go to three or four different county yep. websites. Some of them are awful. Some of them are good. Right. And you've got all the landowners on there as yep. well, which yeah. is huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's all there. I haven't seen anybody do it for this yet, but, uh, you know, both as a raft guide and, and I guided some fly fishing too for a while. You know, I was always checking stream flows uh, for a host of reasons. So I'm waiting for some water stage user to be to be checking their favorite fishing holes and their favorite uh, river stretches for uh, stream flow information. And That's I'll, a good idea. I, I haven't played around <laughs> with that feature yet, but now now well, there you go. To. Maybe you're the guinea pig. Yeah, uh, that's great. Um, so, what's your plan? What's the future of water stage? What are yeah. you guys working on? Yeah, um, so right now we're in Montana, Wyoming, Texas, and Colorado. And uh, I think the long-term goal is to cover the entire western United States. And yep. So we're thinking pretty seriously right now about, about the states that we take on next. Um, in addition to that, in all of our states, there's all, you know, it's really fun right now because we've got a great user base, a really diverse user base. And so we're going out to that user base and saying, how does it become better? What features would you like? What, what would help, you know... Um, 
solve more of the day-to-day problems you have doing this kind of work. And that's been really fun because we're getting some great input. So into this year, we're, we're releasing what, what's our 3.0, our third iteration of WaterSage, and it's going to have um, a lot of functional improvements. Uh, it's going to have um, some data improvements. Um, it's going to be easier to use. It's going to be better looking. I mean, it's going to be real exciting. Nice. Um, uh, and you know, when, you know, from a technical perspective, we're getting off. We we, we use a Silverlight plugin right now, yep. and we're getting off of that plugin. So um, any browser, any location, will be much easier to use. Um, you know, as the future goes on, it's going to be continuing to to listen to our clients and understand ways that we can make their jobs easier. Um, but that's kind of what we're excited about um, yep. as WaterSage grows. That sounds great. And you guys are, um, you know, it, at least with with Mer Ranch Group, you guys have done three or four. Um, seminars for us on the best way yeah. to use it and, yep. and always asking for feedback and so it's we've had a great experience um, so one more kind of question about water and then I've got some quick questions for you absolutely so we can wrap it up um, what changes do you see occurring to water rights water law in Colorado or the West in the next 20 years because you know I think we're there are two million more people moving here there's yep. not enough water so yep. what do you what what would you say is going to happen? Um, yeah, it's it's a great question, uh, and you know, it's, there's so many demands placed on the resource right now, and those demands have changed. You know, uh, we have environmental demands now that are important. We have recreational demands. We have agricultural demands. We have growing municipal demands. Um, I think what I would like to see is, is for the state to come together and to figure out how do we how do we preserve the system that we have, and that is protect the the property rights that, that currently exist. But then, how do we at the same time um, innovate to allow more flexible use? Um, I, I think it's exciting to think about. Um, Allowing allowing someone to, um, you know, a farmer to say, I want to lease a portion of my water to an in-stream flow, you know, for an environmental need. Or I want to provide water um, for a municipality on a temporary basis, but at the same time, I want to keep my farmland viable. Um, there's stuff coming out like that, and I think there's a long way to go with it, and I think the markets are uh, nascent. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of developments to happen, but I, I see it going that direction, uh, and I'm excited to see uh, kind of how I'll be excited to see how we can address the problem by honoring and respecting the system that's in place. Yes. So it'll be interesting, no absolutely. matter what happens. Um, so now I've just got a few more quick questions. Well, you don't have to answer them quickly, but uh, <laughs> you can, well, I probably should. What, yeah. Uh, so. If you could recommend any books on water for somebody who's trying to dig a little deeper on this, are there any you would recommend? And then yeah. any of your yeah. other favorite books, just in general? No, absolutely. Uh, from a technical perspective, um, um, there's uh, a water law for non-lawyers that a guy named Andy Jones, uh, and I think he's got a co-author um, on it, but um, but they wrote, it's actually a great book. I'm a lawyer, and, yeah. and I like that book a lot. Nice. Um, and I'd recommend that just from a technical perspective. The classic is Cadillac Desert. I, I, you know, I have to be honest; I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, sometimes you when you work on down. sometimes when you work in water all day, you're ready for something different at the end of the day. But um, but by all accounts, that is the best history of how water use developed in the West. Um, you know, I read more fiction, and um, and I'm a, I'm a Steinbeck fan. But oh, yeah. Steinbeck does a great job at uh, giving a lot of really good history through narrative of the American West uh, and I think the Poles are uh, Grapes of Wrath um, uh, on one end and East of Eden on the other Grapes of Wrath is a very depressing story <laughs> I haven't read it <laughs> but, um, but very well written and, and a really good narrative about um, development of California and the Dust Bowl and uh, and East of Eden is uh, also a very good narrative about development of the West, but from a diff, kind of a, a much different um, perspective. Uh, and I'd recommend them both. And uh, East of Eden, in particular, uh, is all about water. Um, uh, the first chapter is all about water. Cool. So I haven't read either of those. Yeah, I'll highly, highly recommend it. I'll have links to all these books on the, the web page. Cool. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries? Doesn't have to be about water, but oh. About 
You know, when I watch documentaries, it's usually a 30 for 30. Yeah, <laughs> those some, are good. Of some kind. I saw the one about Bo Jackson the other day. It's yeah. so good. I watched um, um, the, the 85 Bears one, I think, recently. Uh, Fab Five. That was good, too. Yeah, they're all good. Um, I'm trying to think other documentaries. Uh, uh, that's what comes to mind. No, that works. <laughs> um, so if you had to say your favorite location in the West, I may, I'm guessing where you're going to say it is, but is there a certain valley, mountain, yeah. lake, uh, anywhere? Yeah, we've, already, we've already said it. For me, it's, yeah, Upper Rock Valley, Salida to, um, you know, even up to Leadville, uh, and uh, everything from the Collegiates um, down to the Arc, uh, you know, and everything in between. Um, probably more sentimental for me than anything, but that's, that's my spot. Yeah, that's my spot, too. Uh, you can do it all there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so if you could recommend one hike or one specific trip activity, say somebody sitting in North Carolina planning to come out here this summer, sure. what would you recommend they do? That's a great question. I, You know, um, staying on the same theme, I, you know, I, I just say base camp out of, out of Buena Vista, Colorado, or Salida, and, uh, and just do everything it has to offer. Hike to a high mountain lake. Um, there's a hundred options. Um, raft the Arkansas. Um, spend some time on uh, on the Continental Divide. Uh, and explore all the little towns in between. I mean, there's just a little bit of everything. You know, even if you're just car camping, um, you know, and dispersed camping somewhere. I mean, that that can be just as good as it gets. People get so hung up on visiting national parks and. Yeah. The reality is a lot of times national parks are just full of people and yeah. crowded and yeah. you can go there and you've got more land, less people, higher mountains. That's that's it. my feeling. I mean, there's some beautiful places in Rocky Mountain National Park, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't think that they're any more beautiful than some of my favorite spots in the Collegiates. Uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, I... Yeah, I'd, I'd point you to my spot. Not too many of you, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then what do you? What would you say is the biggest challenge facing Colorado or the West in the future? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's all these, um, these multiple... Uh, uh, I think Colorado's a great example of, of high demands on scarce resources. And, and that's everything from land to... Um, to, to even our landscapes, to water and everything, um, and and you're seeing very different kinds of people, um, you know, state their interest in, in those scarce resources. And so I just think this is a testing ground um, to figure out how how do we deal with urban growth, how do we deal with protection of, of our open space, of our agricultural heritage, uh, how you know how do we protect. Uh, kind of our sporting history you know skiing now is i mean i love to ski um but it's it's changed you know uh, it's crowded getting up there is really hard and and i just think these are our problems you know i don't think the answer is closing the border I, you know i think yeah. we should continue to invite people to, to come and be a part of our state but i think that um there's a huge opportunity a challenge but it, but equally an opportunity to define what does it mean to be a coloradan uh today and learning how to invite people into that identity, uh, I think that's important. Huge challenge, but I think it's incredibly important. Um, and I'm excited to kind of see how that shakes out. So if you could make a request of people that are listening, uh, you know, if there's a certain cause that you're passionate about or something you think they should understand more about the West that would help everybody, is there any, is there any specific thing you would, that comes to mind that you would recommend people look into? You know, I, I, and this is just kind of more um, theory or anything else, but I, I think being in the West today, it's more important than ever to honestly consider the perspective of, of people that are on the other side uh, of the table uh, from you. And, and whether that's, you know, wh- whether um, that's politically or on certain issues, uh, um I just don't. I don't think we're going to solve any of our problems by sitting in our camps and not understanding. Everybody comes to the table with with a really valid reason for the way they think yep. something. And in water, that's true too. Whether you know whether you want the government to take over every water right in Colorado and provide them just for fish. I mean, there's a reason people have that perspective. And uh, and while we don't have to agree on everything, I think that we're going to actually get things done by finding ways to collaborate instead of litigating our way to marginal returns 
Yeah. Um, so I, I would say look at your opponent and try to understand why why they think the way they do. Yeah, I agree with that. I just I read a book recently and they were talking about the history of the West and how if you look at communities over time, the ones that have been able to make it work mm-hmm. with these limited resources, including water, are communities that share and that can collaborate with each other yeah. versus which stands in stark contrast to the idea of rugged individualism. Right. I got my plan. And so right. it's you know, it, it's kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum, but yeah. when you're dealing with limited resources, you're, yeah. <laughs> you, there's no choice but, but yeah, I collaborate. Com- I completely agree. Yeah. So. All right. So people can find you at watersage.com. Yep. Absolutely. You're on LinkedIn, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. All the normal places um, you can find out about us. Our company is Ponderosa Advisors and watersage is the product and ponderosa-advisors.com or watersage.com and yeah i'm on linkedin so um so uh yeah if you're interested in any of this kind of stuff feel free to reach out that was great thanks so much ed thank you i really appreciate it so there you have it water rights 101 with spencer williams Uh, i really appreciate spencer taking the time to come on the show and talk with us about this important subject and I hope you found it to be valuable and learned a few things. It's an enormously complicated subject, but I think it's very important to at least dig in a little bit and, and try to get a basic understanding of it because it's, uh, it's only going to become more and more important as the population grows here in Colorado and throughout the West. So thanks to Spencer. I appreciate the time. Thanks to Mountain Khakis for sponsoring. As always, if you have any questions comments ideas for future guests please don't hesitate to reach out to me you can find me at mountainandprairie.com all the links to my social media and all that kind of stuff is there Um, i'll look forward to the next episodes and i will talk with you later